Part One, Sections One to Three of Flatland. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ruth Golding. Flatland, a Romance of Many Dimensions by Edwin Abbott Abbott. To the inhabitants of space in general, and H.C. in particular, this work is dedicated by a humble native of Flatland, in the hope that even as he was initiated into the mysteries of three dimensions, having been previously conversant with only two, so the citizens of that celestial region may aspire yet higher and higher to the secrets of four, five, or even six dimensions, thereby contributing to the enlargement of the imagination, and the possible development of that most rare and excellent gift of modesty among the superior races of solid humanity. Part One. This World. Be patient, for the world is broad and wide. Section One. Of the Nature of Flatland. I call our world Flatland, not because we call it so, but to make its nature clearer to you, my happy readers, who are privileged to live in space. Imagine a vast sheet of paper, on which straight lines, triangles, squares, pentagons, hexagons, and other figures, instead of remaining fixed in their places, move freely about on or in the surface, but without the power of rising above or sinking below it, very much like shadows, only hard and with luminous edges, and you will then have a pretty correct notion of my country and countrymen. Alas, a few years ago I should have said my universe, but now my mind has been opened to higher views of things. In such a country you will perceive at once that it is impossible that there should be anything of what you call a solid kind. But I dare say you will suppose that we could at least distinguish by sight the triangles, squares, and other figures moving about as I have described them. On the contrary, we could see nothing of the kind, not at least so as to distinguish one figure from another. Nothing was visible, nor could be visible to us, except straight lines, and the necessity of this I will speedily demonstrate. Place a penny on the middle of one of your tables in space, and leaning over it, look down upon it. It will appear a circle. But now, drawing back to the edge of the table, gradually lower your eye, thus bringing yourself more and more into the condition of the inhabitants of Flatland, and you will find the penny becoming more and more oval to your view, and at last, when you have placed your eye exactly on the edge of the table, so that you are, as it were, actually a Flatland citizen, the penny will then have ceased to appear oval at all, and will have become, so far as you can see, a straight line. The same thing would happen if you were to treat in the same way a triangle, or square, or any other figure, cut out of pasteboard. As soon as you look at it with your eye on the edge of the table, 
you will find that it ceases to appear to you a figure, and that it becomes, in appearance, a straight line. Take, for example, an equilateral triangle, who represents with us a tradesman of the respectable class. Figure one represents the tradesman as you would see him while you were bending over him from above. Reader's note. Figure one is a downward-pointing triangle with all sides equal. End of reader's note. Figures two and three represent the tradesman as you would see him if your eye were close to the level or all but on the level of the table. Reader's note. Figure two shows a much flatter downward-pointing triangle, with the top edge much longer than the other two sides, which are of equal length. Figure three is flatter still, barely identifiable as a triangle at all. End of reader's note. And if your eye were quite on the level of the table, and that is how we see him in Flatland, you would see nothing but a straight line. When I was in Spaceland, I heard that your sailors have very similar experiences, while they traverse your seas and discern some distant island or coast lying on the horizon. The far-off land may have bays, forelands, angles in and out to any number and extent. Yet, at a distance, you see none of these, unless, indeed, your sun shines bright upon them, revealing the projections and retirements by means of light and shade. Nothing but a grey, unbroken line upon the water. Well, that is just what we see when one of our triangular or other acquaintances comes towards us in flatland. As there is neither sun with us, nor any light of such a kind as to make shadows, we have none of the helps to the sight that you have in Spaceland. If our friend comes close to us, we see his line becomes larger. If he leaves us, it becomes smaller. But still he looks like a straight line, be he a triangle, square, pentagon, hexagon, circle, what you will. A straight line he looks and nothing else. You may perhaps ask how, under these disadvantageous circumstances, we are able to distinguish our friends from one another. But the answer to this very natural question will be more fitly and easily given when I come to describe the inhabitants of Flatland. For the present, let me defer this subject, and say a word or two about the climate and houses in our country. Section 2 OF THE CLIMATE AND HOUSES IN FLATLAND As with you, so also with us, there are four points of the compass, north, south, east, and west. There being no sun, nor other heavenly bodies, it is impossible for us to determine the north in the usual way, but we have a method of our own. By a law of nature with us, there is a constant attraction to the south, and although in temperate climates this is very slight, so that even a woman in reasonable health can journey several furlongs northward without much difficulty, yet the hampering effect of the southward attraction is quite sufficient to serve as a compass in most parts of our earth. Moreover, the rain, which falls at stated intervals, coming always from the north, is an additional assistance, 
and in the towns we have the guidance of the houses, which of course have their side walls running for the most part north and south, so that the roofs may keep off the rain from the north. In the country, where there are no houses, the trunks of the trees serve as some sort of guide. Altogether, we have not so much difficulty as might be expected in determining our bearings. Yet, in our more temperate regions, in which the southward attraction is hardly felt, walking sometimes in a perfectly desolate plain where there have been no houses nor trees to guide me, I have been occasionally compelled to remain stationary for hours together, waiting till the rain came before continuing my journey. On the weak and aged, and especially on delicate females, the force of attraction tells much more heavily than on the robust of the male sex, so that it is a point of breeding, if you meet a lady in the street, always to give her the north side of the way, by no means an easy thing to do always at short notice when you are in rude health and in a climate where it is difficult to tell your north from your south. Windows there are none in our houses, for the light comes to us alike in our homes and out of them, by day and by night, equally at all times and in all places, whence we know not. It was, in old days with our learned men, an interesting and oft-investigated question, what is the origin of light? and the solution of it has been repeatedly attempted, with no other result than to crowd our lunatic asylums with the would-be solvers. Hence, after fruitless attempts to suppress such investigations indirectly by making them liable to a heavy tax, the legislature, in comparatively recent times, absolutely prohibited them. I, alas, I alone in Flatland, know now only too well the true solution of this mysterious problem. But my knowledge cannot be made intelligible to a single one of my countrymen. And I am mocked at, I, the sole possessor of the truths of space, and of the theory of the introduction of light from the world of three dimensions, as if I were the maddest of the mad. But a truce to these painful digressions, let me return to our houses. The most common form for the construction of a house is five-sided or pentagonal, as in the annexed figure. Reader's note. The figure shows a pentagon slightly skewed to the right, with two sides marked RO and OF, forming a point marked O to the north. The left or western side, which has a large opening marked men's door, is marked AR. The right or eastern side, which has a small opening marked women's door, is marked BF. The base or southern side is marked AB. End of reader's note. The two northern sides, RO, OF, constitute the roof, and for the most part have no doors. On the east is a small door for the women, on the west a much larger one for the men. The south side or floor is usually doorless. Square and triangular houses are not allowed, and for this reason. The angles of a square, and still more those of an equilateral triangle, being much more pointed than those of a pentagon, and the lines of inanimate objects, such as houses, being dimmer than the lines of men and women, it follows that there is no little danger 
lest the points of a square or triangular house residence might do serious injury to an inconsiderate or perhaps absent-minded traveller suddenly running against them. And therefore, as early as the eleventh century of our era, triangular houses were universally forbidden by law, the only exceptions being fortifications, powder magazines, barracks, and other state buildings, which it is not desirable that the general public should approach without circumspection. At this period square houses were still everywhere permitted, though discouraged by a special tax. But about three centuries afterwards the law decided that in all towns containing a population above ten thousand, the angle of a pentagon was the smallest house angle that could be allowed consistently with the public safety. The good sense of the community has seconded the efforts of the legislature, and now, even in the country, the pentagonal construction has superseded every other. It is only now and then, in some very remote and backward agricultural district, that an antiquarian may still discover a square house. Section 3. Concerning the Inhabitants of Flatland The greatest length or breadth of a full-grown inhabitant of flatland may be estimated at about eleven of your inches. Twelve inches may be regarded as a maximum. Our women are straight lines. Our soldiers and lowest classes of workmen are triangles with two equal sides, each about eleven inches long, and a base or third side so short, often not exceeding half an inch, that they form at their vertices a very sharp and formidable angle. Indeed, when their bases are of the most degraded type, not more than the eighth part of an inch in size, they can hardly be distinguished from straight lines or women, so extremely pointed are their vertices. With us, as with you, these triangles are distinguished from others by being called isosceles, and by this name I shall refer to them in the following pages. Our middle class consists of equilateral or equal-sided triangles. Our professional men and gentlemen are squares, to which class I myself belong, and five-sided figures or pentagons. Next above these come the nobility, of whom there are several degrees, beginning at six-sided figures or hexagons, and from thence rising in the number of their sides till they receive the honourable title of polygonal or many-sided. Finally, when the number of the sides becomes so numerous, and the sides themselves so small that the figure cannot be distinguished from a circle, he is included in the circular or priestly order, and this is the highest class of all. It is a law of nature with us that a male child shall have one more side than his father, so that each generation shall rise, as a rule, one step in the scale of development and nobility. Thus the son of a square is a pentagon, the son of a pentagon a hexagon, and so on. But this rule applies not always to the tradesmen, and still less often to the soldiers and to the workmen, who indeed can hardly be said to deserve the name of human figures, since they have not all their sides equal. 
With them, therefore, the law of nature does not hold, and the son of an isosceles, i.e. a triangle with two sides equal, remains isosceles still. Nevertheless, all hope is not shut out even from the isosceles that his posterity may ultimately rise above his degraded condition. For after a long series of military successes, or diligent and skilful labours, it is generally found that the more intelligent among the artisan and soldier classes manifest a slight increase of their third side or base, and a shrinkage of the two other sides. Intermarriages, arranged by the priests, between the sons and daughters of these more intellectual members of the lower classes, generally result in an offspring approximating still more to the type of the equal-sided triangle. Rarely, in proportion to the vast number of isosceles births, is a genuine and certifiable equal-sided triangle produced from isosceles parents. Footnote. What need of a certificate, a Spaceland critic may ask? Is not the procreation of a square son a certificate from nature herself, proving the equal-sidedness of the father? I reply that no lady of any position will marry an uncertified triangle. Square offspring has sometimes resulted from a slightly irregular triangle, but in almost every such case the irregularity of the first generation is visited on the third, which either fails to attain the pentagonal rank, or relapses to the triangular. End of footnote. Such a birth requires, as its antecedents, not only a series of carefully arranged intermarriages, but also a long-continued exercise of frugality and self-control on the part of the would-be ancestors of the coming equilateral, and a patient, systematic, and continuous development of the isosceles intellect through many generations. The birth of a true equilateral triangle from isosceles parents is the subject of rejoicing in our country for many furlongs round. After a strict examination conducted by the Sanitary and Social Board, the infant, if certified as regular, is with solemn ceremonial admitted into the class of equilaterals. He is then immediately taken from his proud yet sorrowing parents, and adopted by some childless equilateral, who is bound by oath never to permit the child henceforth to enter his former home, or so much as to look upon his relations again, for fear lest the freshly developed organism may, by force of unconscious imitation, fall back again into his hereditary level. The occasional emergence of an isosceles from the ranks of his serf-born ancestors is welcomed not only by the poor serfs themselves, as a gleam of light and hope shed upon the monotonous squalor of their existence, but also by the aristocracy at large. For all the higher classes are well aware that these rare phenomena, while they do little or nothing to vulgarise their own privileges, serve as a most useful barrier against revolution from below. Had the acute-angled rabble been all, without exception, absolutely destitute of hope and of ambition, they might have found leaders in some of their many seditious outbreaks, 
so able as to render their superior numbers and strength too much even for the wisdom of the circles. But a wise ordinance of nature has decreed that, in proportion as the working classes increase in intelligence, knowledge, and all virtue, in that same proportion their acute angle, which makes them physically terrible, shall increase also and approximate to the harmless angle of the equilateral triangle. Thus, in the most brutal and formidable of the soldier-class creatures, almost on a level with women in their lack of intelligence, it is found that, as they wax in the mental ability necessary to employ their tremendous penetrating power to advantage, so do they wane in the power of penetration itself. How admirable is this law of compensation! and how perfect a proof of the natural fitness and, I may almost say, the divine origin of the aristocratic constitution of the states in Flatland. By a judicious use of this law of nature, the polygons and circles are almost always able to stifle sedition in its very cradle, taking advantage of the irrepressible and boundless hopefulness of the human mind. Art also comes to the aid of law and order. It is generally found possible, by a little artificial compression or expansion on the part of the state physicians, to make some of the more intelligent leaders of a rebellion perfectly regular, and to admit them at once into the privileged classes. A much larger number, who are still below the standard, allured by the prospect of being ultimately ennobled, are induced to enter the state hospitals, where they are kept in honourable confinement for life. One or two alone of the more obstinate, foolish, and hopelessly irregular are led to execution. Then the wretched rabble of the isosceles, planless and leaderless, are either transfixed without resistance by the small body of their brethren, whom the chief circle keeps in pay for emergencies of this kind, or else more often, by means of jealousies and suspicions, skilfully fermented among them by the circular party, they are stirred to mutual warfare, and perish by one another's angles. No less than one hundred and twenty rebellions are recorded in our annals, besides minor outbreaks numbered at two hundred and thirty-five and they have all ended thus. End of part one, section three, recording by Ruth Golding.